You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Audio Podcast. Well, good morning, Grace Covenant Church. My name is Mike Moses. I'm the the founding pastor and the lead pastor of Lake Forest Church. Our building is at exit 23 on Gilead Road, one mile west of I-77. We also have a, uh, we call ourselves the Lake Forest Family of Churches. We have a church in Davidson and one in Denver, and we're uh, beginning a Spanish-speaking congregation um, in the next six months, which we're very excited about. I'm really honored that Pastor Farrell invited me to teach God's Word with you today. It's great to be with you. What a warm-hearted worshiping congregation. The 8 a.m. worship was um, just so good for me, did my soul good, and it's good to be with you today. Uh, Pastor Farrell and I and Bobby Conway, the pastor of Life Fellowship, have been friends for a bunch of years, more than a decade. We've been in unity over our oneness in Christ as pastors for all the time we've known each other, and we wanted to share it. And we know that you are friends with members at Lake Forest and at Life Fellowship, and we wanted to highlight our unity in Christ over and above any small differences of style or taste <clears throat> uh, or shoes that the pastors <laughs> might wear. Uh, and I'm so excited about our shared mission project. I hope you'll participate in bringing school supplies by next week. And next Sunday night, our church is so excited to come here and join with all of our churches. We're going to invite a few others in our night of worship. Really excited about that. Lake Forest Church, when it, when it listed the three, we're the Presbyterian ones. So everybody get ready. to. We're going to get formal now. We're going to all kneel. And we're going to recite the creeds for the next hour. Um, no, we're uh, Lake Forest. We're part of the Evangelical Presbyterian denomination. Uh, we call ourselves Presbyterian with a small p, because by goodness we are mostly about Christ and unity with Christians of all stripes and flavors around the world uh, and of other denominations. And we're joyful to share our faith and our journey in Christ here in Lake Norman with you. Uh, They also, in our denomination, they call us uh, rock and roll Presbyterian at Lake Forest. (laughs) We're kind of at at one extreme end of the spectrum of Presbyterianism, um, which you might know uh, if you've ever been to Lake Forest. Now, um, this is my second visit uh, worshiping at Grace Covenant Church. The first time that I worshiped with you was 19 years ago. Almost to the weekend. It was in August of 1998. Uh, I was meeting with our core group of 42 people who banded together. We were sent out from Forest Hill Church in South Charlotte, uh, where David Chadwick is the pastor. Big, tall guy. He played basketball for UNC Chapel Hill. And I didn't tell him that I was a Duke fan until after they hired me (laughs) to plant the church, uh, because I know North Carolina. Um, That's more important than politics. I was meeting with 42 people in our core group on Sunday nights in the bowling alley. There's a meeting room in the back of the bowling alley right here at exit 25. And on Sunday mornings, I was worshiping at some of the local congregations, and I heard that the Spirit had come alive at Grace Covenant Church. How many of you worshiped back in the day in that small house that's now the Habitat headquarters on 115? Several of you. Uh, so Angie and I and our, and our little baby boys, we showed up to worship there 19 years ago. And in that little tiny house, there were about 55,000 people in there. And, and just worshiping in the spirit, it was beautiful. And Pastor Farrell brought the word. And I was like, that guy is going to be my buddy. He's going to be my pastor friend here. I love his heart for the Lord and for people. And so I, I introduced myself to him. And he goes, well, hey, I know you're starting a new church. And instead of treating me like competition... 
hey man, we got enough churches up in here, even though it's the fastest growing town in, in America this year. Uh, he's like, why don't you come, would you come to my office this week? I'd love to get to know you, Mike. And so I came to his office and we just enjoyed and began our friendship. And, and ever since we meet uh, often, sometimes we met regularly, sometimes infrequently for counsel with each other and just friendship, uh, as well as with Bobby Conway. And, uh, but so at the end of our conversation, I could tell this is going to be a friend. Uh, and he goes, well, Mike, what do you need? Well, gosh, uh, uh, well, what we need is we were going to meet one place as a church in October, but instead now we're going to start at Kate's daycare and skating rink, um, which was awesome because I preached under a disco ball. (laughs) Dang, that was cool. I used to be cool uh, for about a year and that was it. Uh, But I was like, we weren't planning on having to buy chairs. You know, they don't have chairs in a roller skating rink. And so we don't really have a budget for that. We'll figure it out. He goes, how much is that going to cost? And I mentioned a price of several thousand dollars. He goes, hold on a second. He called a leader or two of your church, came back in, wrote Lake Forest Church a check. You did. Those of you who raised your hands, you were participating by your offerings, wrote us a check, and funded our chairs for our church plant launch on October 18th, 1998. Uh, and Pastor Farrell is the most generous, kingdom-minded pastor in the, in the Charlotte region that I know, and I've tried to live out that spirit of his toward other pastors and churches ever since. One more time, I'm honored to be here with you. All right, now, as awesome as Pastor Farrell is, he's not nearly as awesome as Jesus. Why don't we talk about him the rest of the time? All right? I get to talk about the heart of a disciple. And we have to hear from Jesus on what the heart of a disciple would be because we want it to be the heart of his heavenly father and ours. So let me start with a question. Have you ever been away and missed home badly? You know what that feels like. I'm a North Carolina boy, born and bred, grew up in Greensboro. But my wife and I uh, went to school in the Carolinas. My wife and I uh, lived in Los Angeles in three of our early married years. And man, after living there for more than a year, we, we were dirt poor, uh, couldn't afford to come home. After living there for over a year, we began to long and ache for home. I mean, we liked L.A., but, but it wasn't home. I remember a Saturday morning, I raided the Yellow Pages back when those existed. Somebody turned to a millennial and tell them what Yellow Pages are. Um, and I raided the Yellow Pages, and I found the Holy Grail, and I drove an hour to South Central L.A. to a southern-styled barbecue restaurant. I sat at that blue formica table for about three hours. They were like, what's wrong with that guy? He's like crying into the hush puppies. Uh, it was so good. There was another Saturday morning. We woke up our second uh, autumn in, in, in L.A., except it wasn't autumn. It's eternal summer, which is awesome, except when you really miss autumn. Um, and we woke up on a Saturday. And we're like, we are going to get in the car. We're going to drive until we find a leaf that is turning color. And we mapped out this route up in the mountains, and we, got, we put on flannel shirts, even though it was 83 degrees. We got in our car, and we drove, and got onto the freeway, hit a traffic jam. <laughs> Almost cried, missing home. We never made it to a fallen leaf. Uh, that same year, we were watching a movie that had been filmed in Beaufort, South Carolina. And there was a scene on their front porch on a summer evening with the sounds of the south. You know what it is. The cicadas, the tree frogs, there were fireflies, 
And Angie and I looked at each other, and independently, we both had tears kind of rolling down our cheeks. We missed home. And here's what's true about every one of us here today. Whether you're a spiritual explorer, whether you're a long-time Christian, whether you're a skeptic and you're here kicking the tires of the Christian faith, we all long for home. We all long for the place where we're known, the place where we're loved as we are. The place where we know we matter to someone other than just ourselves. And whether you're part of the generation that grew up watching Cheers and you're hoping that everybody knows your name in some place. If you're the generation that grew up watching Friends gather every night at the Smelly Cat coffee shop. Or if you're today's generation watching a close group of oddballs find acceptance discussing the Big Bang Theory and their apartment with Sheldon. The truth is, we all live with this ache, this longing for home. And today I want to look at what Jesus has to say about our true home. And we're going to listen in as Jesus tells a story about finding home. Jesus loved to teach through story. He wasn't like us modern day pastors preaching with three points and five footnotes and subpoints. He usually taught through story. Uh, and now we know a mission statement is important and businesses have clear good businesses. If you're a business leader, have a clear mission statement. If you go to Joe Gibbs racing, you immediately see on the wall, their clear mission statement painted on the wall. Well, biblical scholars universally agree that Luke chapter 15, you can turn in your Bible there. Luke 15 represents Jesus clearest mission statement, the heart of a disciple following the heart of the father. And he gives this mission statement in the form of a story. It's actually three stories, and they're related to one another. They shouldn't really be read separately. And so if you follow Jesus, or you're here wanting to look into more about Jesus, hey, his mission statement is a big deal. And so let's look into the heart of his mission together. I'm going to read it to you. It's a little bit long, so hang in there. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. You ready? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose, just suppose for a moment, one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country, go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, joyfully put it on his shoulders and goes home, calls his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you, In the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Footnote. I want to ask Jesus who the 99 are who don't need to repent. Anyway. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Hey, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. (laughs) The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, 
how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So after practicing his speech, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted the rehearsed speech and said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? You don't know? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the meditating on and the doing of his word today amongst us. There's a tension right here in verse 1 of Luke 15. You see it when Jesus arrives on the scene. There are two groups of people in this scene. It's very important to know this. And they represent essentially two ways of living. On one side, you got the tax collectors and the sinners, what you might call the non-religious group. And they were lumped together because religious people saw them as no different. They were just a group. Folks who got no respect and had quit trying to fit into the Jewish religious system of the day. On the other side, you got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious people. And they were the rule keepers. They were the religious types in a negative sense of the word, if you've read much of the Gospels. And they prided themselves on keeping the religious law and living by all the traditions and rules of their faith. They were the epitome of not just righteous, but self-righteous. They saw the world as divided between insiders and outsiders. Those who are in God's club and those who are not, nor could they ever be. What's Jesus doing hanging out with that riffraff over there is what they're muttering to themselves. And they were confident of their own place as insiders And they looked down on those they saw as outsiders. And catch this. Right here, verse 1 and 2. Right in the middle stands Jesus. Rebels on his left, rule keepers on his right. As one country preacher likes to say, that's my Jesus. I love it that he's right in the middle. And Jesus, the master teacher, the master storyteller, the God man, the invisible God made visible, stands in the middle of rebels and rule keepers, and says, look, y'all, these are both dead-end ways of living. The way of the rebel, the way of the rule keeper, neither of them leads to life with a capital L. Let me show you a better way. 
And he shows us the very heart of his gospel, the heart of his heavenly father. How to be at home in your father's love. Whether you're the rebelling type or the rule-keeping type. Most of us are one or the other in our tendency. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees and answers their muttering by telling these three stories. First story, quick. Suppose you're a shepherd and you lost one of your sheep. Wouldn't you leave the 99 and go find the one? And when you found it and you brought it home, wouldn't you call up your, brothers, brother, your, your buddies and say, Good news, I found my lost sheep. It's bow time. Come on over. Got some Cajun rice and biscuits. Let's celebrate. Story number two. <clears throat> Suppose you had ten expensive coins, each worth a day's wages. And you lost one somewhere inside your own house. Wouldn't you turn on all the lights, sweep the whole place till you found it? And when you found it, wouldn't you call up your buddies and say, Hey, come on over, we're having a cookout. I found my lost coin. We're going to bogate this thing. Not just tailgate, it's going to be awesome. Party. And Jesus gets to his third story, and now he slows down. He says, There was a man who had two sons. The first, the younger, said, Dad... Give me my inheritance now. This is a familiar passage for all of us who've been a Christian for some time and you know God's word. And there'll be some details uh, that are very familiar with you, to you. And the youngest son is basically, when he asks for his inheritance now, he's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And I wish you were not an authority in my life. But I do wish I had your money. The way sometimes we want the life God gave us. The resources God has entrusted to our care without God's authority in our life. Been there, done that. Maybe you too. To everyone's surprise, the father says, as you wish, in the words of the Princess Bride movie. And so the son, he takes his dad's inheritance money, he goes away and he lives the, he uses his dad's money to live the opposite of his dad's way of life. Until the money's gone, he's broke, he's got no friends, he's hungry and he's sad. Now, the text tells us that that son went off to a far country. I'm thinking Asheville, maybe. Spent all his money on what Jesus called wild living. Now, let me pause here for a minute, because it's easy for us church people to write the younger son off as some kind of party animal and not identify with him and his spirit. Because in actuality, his goal was to be out from under the father. He was convinced that the good life was somewhere out there and that living the self-life instead of under the Father's authority, the Father's provision and the Father's way, oh, my self-life is the way to the good life. What culture tells me is the way to the good life. And I wonder if you, like me, can think of a time in your life. If you're a church, if you're like Sunday school boy like me. Dude, I grew up, I got all the gold stickers in my Southern Baptist Sunday school. Can you think of a time when you decided to treat God and God's will as if he were dead so you could spend your time and your energy and your life, which God gave you, on things you knew were against the Father's best wishes? Then finally, Jesus says, after he had spent it all. See, God is a patient God. It's part of the picture painted here. He lets us reach the end of our self-life road. He allows us the freedom to discover that that road that we thought was our ticket to real life doesn't really lead to fulfillment. According to Jesus, the self-life road leads to a pigsty kind of a life. And so the younger son hits rock bottom. He's sitting there in the pig pen, and he's not 
notice, he's really not repentant or, or seeking the father's heart for himself, but he starts remembering how good his father is. He's like, even the servants in my father's house had good food to eat. And the younger son starts to ache and long for home. You ever been in a situation like that? You, you, you made a right turn down a road that you thought was good, but one day you open up your eyes a while later, and you're like, man, how did I end up here? So far away from any sense of being at home with God. How did I end up so far from Him? I've been a pastor for some years now, uh, here in Lake Norman for 19 years. Um, and, and I think this younger son's story in the Lake Norman area often sounds like this when I hear it today. Yeah, I grew up, I kind of sort of knew God, and I kind of sort of loved God. I gave my life to Him when I was in youth group. And then I went to college or started a trade, and I discovered beer and girls. And I said, God, you're awesome and all that, but I'm going to kind of chill with you for a while. And I'm just going to mail that in for a while because I've got that base covered. And I'm going to treat you the way the younger son treated his dad for a while. Kind of like you're not there. I know you're there, but I'm not going to deal with you. And I'm going to spend everything you've given me, life, health, money, time, relationships, on whatever my form of wild living, quote unquote, is. That doesn't have you in the center, God. And maybe I'll find the good life that way. And now, I hear this all the time at Lake Forest Church, I've woken up 10, 15, 20 years later, and my heart is aching to be back at home with my Heavenly Father. And that way of living has left me with some scars and some consequences. I'm lonely for God. Now, let me be clear about this. This wild living apart from God may not have meant for you or mean for you today like partying all the time. It could mean a different kind of self-life. Like in the Lake Norman area, it might mean working all the time to accumulate money, 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 money for the good life at the lake. That may have been the way that you take what the God's given you and live a self-life instead of a God-centered life. Well, the younger son finds himself homeless, shoeless, penniless, hopeless, makes up his mind he's going to head home. But he decides to go home not as a son, but as a servant. Why? He's like, well, my father couldn't actually receive me back. Like, it's just the way I was. Because the son is ashamed of his recent past and convinced his father won't take him back. So he starts practicing his apology. Middle schoolers, high schoolers, maybe you're, you've started learning this trick. Like when you need to do an apology, you should practice it first in front of the mirror for sincerity. Uh, you know, like practice it, and if it doesn't look sincere, then the next strategy is, and then at this point, I'm going to turn around and yank a nose hair so that when I finish the apology, I have a tear in my eye to mom and dad. It's a little tip for you. Um, so he practices this, this sort of apologetic statement, and it's at this, this point, Jesus gives us an incredible detail in verse 20. It says, while he was still a long way off. And I want to suggest he's not only a long way off geographically, he's a long way off theologically. He doesn't understand that his heavenly, that his father has a heart full of grace. He's still trying to do it on his own terms and come back and make a deal with dad. But there's the father waiting for him, burning love incarnate, standing out of the gate at the edge of the property every night for years, hoping, praying. Why? To show us that God's love never quits. 
If you've been running the rebel road, he won't quit watching and longing for you and for me. He's crazy, mad, head over heels with love for you. Jesus reveals to us his father who has open arms waiting for the son to return from the pigsty. And Jesus in this story shows us something remarkable about the heart of of God, the Father, the heart of God, that the love of God never quits. He doesn't ever stop loving you because you've wandered off to some far country. He doesn't not love you when you come back. He welcomes you with open arms because at the core, at the center of God the Father's heart is not anger versus uh, against sin. It's compassion for the humans He's made in His image. Do you remember that Jesus' most basic original revelation that the most skeptic of scholars agree Jesus birthed this idea into the world that God is love. Jesus was a hippie Messiah. God is love. He said it so many different ways and he pictures it in this story. Because we think... When, 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 and some of you may, you might have just trickled in here today, just barely in the back row, because you think if you come to the front, God might smite you because of some junk going on with you. And we're, because we have this image, God's going to be like this when we come back. And Jesus says he's like this. Arms wide open with love. Some folks think we're supposed to come to church as God's home and feel rotten about ourselves reflexively. Come in, salivate, and feel terrible about myself. Man, I'm just a no good, rotten son of a banjo. And that somehow this is what God wants. And that's what the younger son thinks God wants on his return. But the father in the story, the heavenly father, says, You're not worthless. You're my son. Welcome back. You have my full acceptance, my full approval, my full joy. Just come here, boy. And now live inside of my embrace. Come home, all is well. I've never stopped loving you. Friend, if you're here today, you trickled in here, and you're waiting to come home to your Heavenly Father because of something you've done or left undone, or you're just afraid that God's angry with you because you've simply been indifferent to Him for a number of years, I hope you hear Jesus' invitation today through His mission statement stories. His heart for you is my son, my daughter. Come home. I've never stopped loving you. Come home. You have my full affection right now. Come home. And we do that by just putting our faith in Jesus and letting him embrace you as his beloved. Now, Jesus' mission statement stories has a long ending. Almost as much of the time is spent on this last part as the first part. And it tells us something else. Not only does God's love not quit, God's love doesn't keep score. And this is where the story continues. Jesus continues and he says, Meanwhile, you see, Jesus tells us the oldest son was working out in the field. He starts to hear all this commotion back at the house. And he calls one of the servants over and he says, Hey man, what's going on? What's up at the house? And the servant can hardly contain himself. He's like, what? You did it here? Man, your brother came home. Your dad hired DJ Tiesto. We're having a pig roast with North Carolina Western style barbecue, not that junk in the east with vinegar. It's a serious party, man. And Uncle Joe's making margaritas. It's a party. Celebrate good times. Come on. I mean, did you notice it says music and dancing? Have you noticed that detail in the story before from Jesus? 
It is a serious party. And the servant's like, and dude, hey, I, I just made up this new dance. When I go back to the party, I'm going to try it out. What do you think? It's called the sprinkler. And that's when this dance was invented. Um, the dance of, uh, of white people everywhere who have no rhythm, can't dance. And at a party, that can be your go-to. The, the sprinkler. So, what, what does Jesus say? I know, because I have no rhythm. That's my only dance. What does Jesus say happens next? The older brother ran and embraced his younger brother and joined the celebration because he had the heart of the father. No. Jesus says the older brother became what? Angry. Isn't that what? He's angry? Here's why. He's been playing the game by the rules. He has disdain for those who color outside of God's lines. He has bitterness and resentment toward those who do not follow the way of his father. He is angry about those in the world. He's been keeping score. He's counting. He's the good one. He's been working religiously for the Father all this time. And yet his brother is the one who gets the party. It's not fair. And his brother's the one his father was out on the edge of the property line every night. Every night, Dad took a walk. He stand at the edge. Looking, longing, maybe with his arms open, just existentially communicating out there, son, hope you know I love you, come home. And the older brother missed the heart of the father. He resents anyone who's taken on the role of the rebel. All these years, the older brother says, notice the, 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 the phrase, I've been slaving for you. Did you hear that? That's the same word that the younger son was in his rehearsed speech that he thought he mistook that the father was a rule-keeping father and he's going to come back and be a servant. Guess what? The older brother has mistaken it too. And in your flesh and in mine, outside of the spirit, uninformed by the word, not abiding in the love of God through Jesus moment by moment, your flesh and mine will also always drift toward ascribing to God that he is a rule-keeper and he is not happy with you unless you've served him lately and fully. He missed the heart of the father. If we're honest, many of us, son, this school boy like me, identify with the older brother. We tend to see God this way. And he treats his father's love like a report card or an account ledger. We all know, if you're a Christian, you know you don't earn your salvation by works. It's by grace through faith. Or the other way around. But then we think on the other side, we stay in his approval by slaving away and doing the right things. And the father's like, you missed my heart. You have my approval through, through the righteousness of Jesus before and after. Just come and live in it. In the joy, in the celebration, in the music, in the party of it, of my grace. So let's go back. If first, the, the older son is no different than the younger. He also wants the father's stuff, but without the father. Do you sometimes slip into living the Christian life without actually living inside the relational love of your father? 
Now, if you're like, man, I've heard this story my whole life, I want you to listen up here in closing for just a moment. Let's go back and think again. Who was Jesus talking to? Who was he talking to? The Pharisees. And he tells them these three stories. Now, get this. This is, this is, your, this is our junior Bible scholar moment. You ready? The first story is about a sheep that is lost far away. And it's found and it's brought to the home. And they celebrate. The second story is about a coin that's lost where? In the house, yeah. It's found and they celebrate. And then there's a third story, now about two, not one. The first one is lost far away. The second, in the artistry of Jesus, the literary genius of Jesus, he wants us to know is lost in the house. It's just as possible to be lost in the house as it is to be lost away. You could have grown up a Christian, be living a decent life, thinking I took care of all that spiritual stuff. I don't need to be in the house, hanging close with my heavenly father as he welcomes home rebels. I've already got credit for time served. You can be going to church, doing all the right Bible studies, serving on the right team, saying the right words, but still be missing the party of God's grace and his love and his welcoming arm to you, to look you in the eyes every day to say, you're my beloved in whom I am well pleased because of Christ in you. And you can miss his joy and welcoming heart standing on the edge that the heart of the Father is looking, 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 looking with love toward those who are lost away from the house. The Father says to the older son, everything I have, all of my approval and riches, it's already yours. Ephesians 1 says, to those who are in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Jesus wants us to see there are two ways we can be lost. Out on the road of our rebellions or lost in the field of our rule keeping and our disdain for an unbelieving world. That is a form of lostness. If we slip into disdain, anger, and judgment against those outside the faith. That is Jesus' direct point to the Pharisees. The funny thing about this story is it's often called the story of the prodigal son. And that fits in many ways, but as author Tim Keller points out, the son is not the true prodigal in the story. The word prodigal, you may know, means to spend lavishly everything you have. And by this definition, it's the father who's the true prodigal. He held nothing back. He gave it all for both of his sons. In fact... Get this detail. In the very beginning of the story, when Jesus says the father divided his inheritance between the sons, he uses the specific word for inheritance, bios, life. There were other words Jesus could have chosen for wealth or property, but Jesus says the father divided his very life for his sons. You see, God's love has spent it all. He gave his own life through his son Jesus so that we could come home. And stay at home abiding in his love. And live a life of welcome to those far from home. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. When he says he divided his life. It's pointing forward to the cross. Where God the Father and Jesus the Son would be divided. The very life of Jesus given as a substitutionary atonement for our sin. 
so you and I could be forgiven and reconciled with our God who is love to live at home with him now and forever and live a lifestyle as a church and individuals of welcome and love and grace to those who are lost outside the home. Let's pray over this word from God in response. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. God, some of us in this room, we come to you as the younger son. If you're here and your tendency has been to be to run away from the father's house, would you come home to love right now? There must be a younger son here or daughter. Come home, drop your rebellion, admit that it's led to some pigsty ways of living and that your heart is lonely for God. Come home and let your father embrace you. Let him put the coat of the righteousness of Jesus on you, applied by faith, so that you are approved by him now and forever because of Jesus, not because of your past or future behavior. Let him fit you with the ring that signifies you're a beloved member of his family forever. Come home. You just say, Heavenly Father, I I now give all that I know and understand of me to all that I know and understand of you. Forgive my sins. I will follow Jesus. It's that simple, and then you tell the person you came with. Heavenly Father, probably most of us in this room are going to more tend toward being the older son to rule keepers. Heavenly Father, bring us into the party. Lord, rebuke us just like you rebuked the Pharisees for any disdain we may hold in our heart today for an unbelieving world, for those who do not share our biblical opinions or our political bent. Lord, we wrestle in this culture today as Christians. We get caught up in the stream and the flow of culture, which is division and hate and disdain and mocking. And we, Lord, we repent in the name of Jesus. We will not be those people. We will be salt and light with a posture and words of grace and truth. Always, always with the welcoming posture of the heart of the Father. We want that heart as a disciple that welcomes home in love those who are outside of the love of God by faith. Help us to be that welcoming person this week to one person you've put in our life. And help our churches to be places of welcome here in the Lake Norman area. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus and the church of God agreed and said, Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.